Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Freedom's been a massive motivator for me in terms of feeling like I have the freedom to roam, the freedom to play, the freedom to explore and adventure and um, get lost and make a mess and <laughs> pick up the pieces and start again. And um, yeah, just not to feel kind of trammeled into a particular way of being. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Henry Fletcher. Henry is a facilitator, storyteller and maker. As a facilitator, Henry helps people experience and immerse themselves in nature. As a storyteller, he seeks a positive narrative around our environment and our relationship with our surroundings. And as a maker, he creates beautiful cairns, a pile of stones which, when carefully structured, can last centuries. In this episode, Henry and I discuss the concepts of freedom, our eco-identity, and how nature plays a vital role in finding meaning within our lives. This conversation came about wholly by accident. I was running along the beach not far from my home a little while back and stumbled across a man building a large stone structure, a cairn, on the beach. Curiosity took over and I went over to have a quick chat. Five minutes later, we'd swap numbers, and the next weekend, I nip back to sit down and record this episode with Henry. He explains the reason for building the cairn himself, but in order to set the scene, um, I could see it from where we sat to record this episode, and there was an incredible atmosphere of almost bleak, grey, but wild calm about the beach on the east of England in Suffolk that day. It all felt quite ethereal, and it was a joy to sit down with my new friend, uh, given such a chance encounter. Okay, over to Henry Fletcher. guess it would be good if you could just uh, introduce yourself and who are you what do you do however you perceive that hi matt i am henry um mm, <laughs> what do i do i I've, i guess i'm most comfortable calling myself a facilitator of nature-based experiences uh that takes different guises um i primarily work 
in Iceland um, on a trail development project, which has involved taking artists and groups of volunteers on multi-day um, walking experiences and uh, cairn building trips and tree planting trips. And apart from that, I, um, I practice oral storytelling and, and trying to move more towards developing a creative practice, which is um, how we met actually on the beach uh, a few days ago. Uh, you were witness to perhaps my first <laughs> create creation or artistic um, project in a public space. And it's a cairn build or, uh, built out of sea rocks, um, two and a half million year old coralline crag sea rocks that I collected from the beach following a storm in Thorpness, where we're now sitting. Why did you decide to build a cairn on Thorpness Beach? And why are you here, I guess? Um, so my family are from Suffolk. I've been coming down to Thorpness as a kid, um, well, from age four. Um, so about 30, 30, well, like 33 years ago. Um, so I'm now 37 and been coming down here regularly um, throughout the years. And I'm here now because I was in Iceland, came back for Christmas to see my family. Lockdown was uh, reinstated and I <laughs> fortuitously found myself here in Thornness using a family property and have been permitted to stay. Um, I normally, when I'm in Suffolk, stay in Woodbridge. I have a flat there and that is currently uh, rented out. So, um, yeah, it's been an interesting like conversation for myself between Suffolk and uh, locating myself here. I haven't always felt particularly comfortable being in Suffolk. Um, like with my family, uh, proximity to family, very much like on the doorstep. Um, I've never quite felt free, uh, but spending two or three months down in Thornness, um, slightly further away from family, still like within touching distance. But um, yeah, I've found that extra distance to be <laughs> super, super conducive to feeling free. And so in a way, I've found, I, I feel like I've located my space within Suffolk. And um, yeah, that, that sense of freedom is something that I've kind of missed when I've been in Suffolk before. But I think it's partly, you know, that, that proximity to family that I spoke about, but also the prox, like just being in this space when you're looking out and all you can see is like horizon, um, which is really uh, special. And yeah, the Cairn has been, yeah, it's been an interesting journey into a kind of revelation, like revealing myself. Um, I prefer, like, I feel comfortable at the edge of things normally and like not being seen and not being visible um, for better or worse. And, um, you know, I've, I've really had to like push myself into that space of like, okay, now I'm gonna like really allow my myself and my work to be seen. Um, it wasn't certainly wasn't my intention when I started it. I just saw loads of beautiful rocks lying on the beach. I spent a couple of weeks collecting them up, like an hour or two each day at low tide. And having collected them, I was then <laughs> then realised I had to do something with them. Which, yeah, that, I think that was probably the hardest bit of the project was just like getting over that initial hurdle of um, yeah, okay, now I'm actually going to do something. And it's been yeah, it's been a, a powerful medicine for me 
to make connections with people living here, um, have those conversations in a very public space, in a very public way, in a in a very kind of outgoing way that I wouldn't normally kind of gravitate towards. But yeah, it's been a it's definitely been a it's journey, and um, my body is like aching, but yeah, <laughs> I'm smiling within. <laughs> Well, there's good aching, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it would be useful to have some context. What is a cairn? A cairn is a pile of um, stones carefully arranged or not so carefully arranged. It doesn't, you know, I guess there's no uh, specific recipe, but um, it's a dry stone walling technique. And if made correctly, the pile of stones can last decades or even centuries. Um, traditionally used as a way marker uh, in mountain territories, so helping people find their way in bad weather and um, marking the route. It's also been used as a, um, well, you can get like burial cans. So, you know, before people were interred in the, in the ground and a cross placed above them, um, on top of them, uh, people were often buried under a pile of rocks, um, especially in kind of Celtic Nordic cultures. And um, yeah, I love that idea of like the bones and stones kind of mingling together through the centuries and each being kind of leached of their minerals. And um, there's a, yeah, there's a kind of nice closeness between death and cairns and the kind of ancientness and the ancestral um, energies that cairns embody and carry. And there's a tradition in Iceland of cairns being repositories of uh, like poetry that people stick into the little crevices as they walk past. And um, they're not always the most like pleasant poems, but... <laughs> I like that kind of idea of them being like collecting points of um, conversation and thought and philosophy. And this cairn that I built on the beach that is actually in the intertidal zone. So the storm may or may not um, remove it fairly quickly, but it will at some point. Um, has already become like a little bit of a like talking, talking space. Like yesterday there was a good two or three hours with people just standing near it and just chatting. I like to imagine that they're chatting about their relationship to the sea and, you know, all that kind of place-specific um, understanding. And That's very interesting. Well, and, I, you know, I should say, I mean, Henry can see it now. If I look over my shoulder, we can see the cairn on the beach. So people are standing there and talking about it with you sat here. They can't see you. They don't know you're here. No, they don't. No, I um occasionally i'll go and take a photo because it's really nice to see people standing by it but yeah it's, it, sometimes i have to put the blind down because <laughs> it gets a bit too distracting i'm like oh god so what do you think it is about that structure that is rallying people and creating a yeah it's it's quite funny because you know essentially i'm just piling stones on top of one another and it's become a talking point and um you know i've, I've tried to create a form that um, is aesthetically resonant and beautiful. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's more just the fact that 
as I walked down the beach collecting some the other day, a fisherman was sitting under his little umbrella and he remarked to me, it's like, what do you want with that old stuff? <laughs> and that's essentially, I think, you know, the attitude that a lot of people have taken to this kind of brown amorphous rock that's just occasionally like found in weird lumps on the beach. Um, so like bringing all of that together into one point and assembling it in a form that greets the eye. Um, I think, yeah, it kind of opens up that, that, um, a layer of awareness into something that our environment is made up on or like founded upon and, um, deeper around that kind of like conversation. There's been a couple of people who are fighting to protect the coast from onshore, um, energy developments and they've really kind of resonated with it because obviously the the rock is called coralline crag and it's um it's fragile and that's one of the uh environments that's at at risk from these onshore developments so they would like to use it as a symbol for their fight against these kind of um, energy companies doing things in their words the wrong way i looked into it yesterday and yeah it's a complex issue so uh, i haven't embroiled myself too much in the politics but yeah delighted if they uh, fight corporate power i was just about to ask but maybe i shouldn't <laughs> are you happy that it's a symbol but um no, i wouldn't say i'm happy it probably makes me more uncomfortable than anything um like i'm not you know i try and like i like i mentioned I, might stay on the edge of things but um as a storyteller martin shaw once said is like don't make a peripheral life out of a peripheral experience so it's uh attempting to locate myself back into the center of things is always going to be a journey for me and um yeah i think you know probably most people who have these kind of big outdoor experiences or adventures and you know commit to a life on on the margins of society then um, you know, I think that's always part of the task is making sure that you're fully integrated within, you know, the narrative of society and the rest of it. I mean, the semantics are interesting because life on the edge often implies, you know, jumping off big cliffs on pairs of skis and base jumping, but that obviously isn't what you're talking about. You know, how have you traveled from being, you know, a young man coming here age four um, to living your life on the edge of things or, I mean, as an outcast in a self-inflicted? No, not, I wouldn't say as an outcast. I think what I mean is um, the edge for me is always that, that kind of creative edge, that, that place that you try and locate as like what motivates you. It's that, it's that thing that pushes you beyond yourself or that for me it's like that I always have my, my my kind of scanning the horizon in front of me in 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 a kind of uh effort to locate what it is what it is that I want to move into or move towards um so I don't particularly like staying still and I don't like repeating the same things it's a journey of growth which you know I think growth discovery and um, questioning the kind of conventional assumptions of, you know, zeitgeist opinion. (laughs) 
Very interesting. So what is it, I mean, is it nature or nurture that draws you to these types of spaces? Because as I was walking, you know, towards this house today, it was raining sideways and it was windy and we can hear the wind and the rain right now. It's actually people walking towards your cam right now. Um, and you've naturally moved towards Iceland rather than the Bahamas. What is it about these kind of woolly jumpered, wild, windy places that appeals? I think it's primarily the freedom. Freedom's been a massive motivator for me in terms of feeling like I have yeah, the freedom to roam, the freedom to play, the freedom to explore and adventure and um, get lost and make a mess and <laughs> pick up the pieces and start again. And um, yeah, just not to feel kind of trammeled into a particular way of being. Um, and I feel like, you know, environments, you know, psychogeography, they reflect that kind of opportunity or that kind of uh, reality that you that one can kind of live by in these environments um whether that's nature or nurture i think it's actually a lot in large part you know due to the experiences i had in thoughtness here when i was growing up like i had complete freedom to roam which i think is pretty rare in today's world and um yeah i'm sure you probably also had a similar experience down in thoughtness like growing up here like you know the only reason we ever came back to the house was to eat and essentially we had complete freedom all of the rest of the time and um yeah i've just i don't know i've always committed to that in some way shape or form like i've never never wanted to give it up it's always been like super important to me and so was it that you you had the freedom and then you lost it somewhere and then sought to regain it or was it just you're unwilling to lose it I think, you know, a lot of these kind of nature-based, freedom-based experiences are kind of little seeds that are planted in your in your childhood. And I had one particular experience in South Africa, which was uh, eye-opening, soul-opening, um, like a really transformative experience facilitated by a spiritual, spiritually kind of orientated bush guide and you know, I was pretty young at the time, wasn't completely sure or uh, didn't completely understand how, what, what the components of that experience were in order to make me feel the way that I felt, which was just completely alive and like <laughs> resonant with the wild, wild and, um, yeah, with this kind of alignment with the, with, with the wild and uh, creative like possibility and, you know, there were just endless possibilities in the in those moments. But I, as I say, I didn't really understand why, where or why that had all like um, been possible. So it took me a while to get back to that point. Um, I'd say a good decade of like searching and seeking and trying to like make sense of the experience. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, I guess, still primarily the, the reason why I do things in the way that I do them. Um, you know, I've made sense of that experience by understanding um, or exploring a relationship to nature in different guises and different forms and trying to s offer that 
to others through the lens of these nature-based uh, experiences that I sort of mentioned at the beginning. And yeah, I feel like there's, it's like a, it's a long, it's an ongoing long-term conversation that happens between self and, and the environment, which always takes on and finds new form. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think the dreaming is a kind of dreaming process for me. It's like you invest yourself in nature and um, you begin to kind of take on those different aspects of different environments and they then get expressed in your own um, creative acts. Or So when you say freedom, do you mean, I mean, you obviously mean physical freedom, but you also mean intellectual, spiritual, mental freedom, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, physical freedom, I think, is, has been a, an expression or a way to kind of experience that spiritual freedom. Uh, freedom. What is it you're looking for? I think that always changes. Uh, I think at the moment what I'm looking for is recognition of the work that we've been doing in Iceland. So I'm writing a guidebook uh, that's got three parts, like a notes on ecology, a notes on walking, and then a book featuring the facilitation practices that we've been employing out there. And um, I'm working with a guy called Jay Simpson in uh, New York. And together we've been running this project in Iceland for the past like six years. And yeah, we're now trying to create this this book project. Um, so yeah, I think that's currently what I'm seeking or searching for. Um, but yeah, I've really, I've really found that question to to shift with time, and I guess more broadly, what I'm looking for is an alignment and a resonance with with the Earth's wildness, um, and being a kind of almost like a conduit for for those wild environments to continue existing because I think without them we become bereft of like a lot of meaning and a lot of beauty and yeah that's not a place I want to be <laughs> well loaded question are they at risk <laughs> <laughs> well Yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, the earth will always have the, the final say, potentially. And you know, I try not to create this dichotomy of with or without. Like, it's always with. Like, if we're here, it's it's with the wild. Um, there's nothing wilder than, you know, the bush in the front garden here blowing in the wind. You know, we don't need huge, magnificent landscapes to call them wild. But um, obviously, yeah, the, the diversity of the environments is dwindling, which, yeah, it's uh, it's scary, I guess, at the end of the day. Like, I don't think we recognize or even acknowledge how scary that is. I don't think we'll really understand. And obviously, then we have, like, the whole, like, shifting baseline um, dynamic, which you know, read a book from 200 years ago about the state of the oceans and boats could hardly move through them because there were so many like turtles or fish like swimming in the oceans. But we don't, we don't sense that loss because we weren't there. Um, 
So I think that's scary as well. Like, what are we getting used to? <laughs> Maybe this pandemic has been a good example of how we're so adaptable. I think that's it. I think that is one of the most scary things is it's our, we just don't care. I think that's the point. I mean, you know, maybe as a species, um, our inability to look at something and say we absolutely have to stand up right now and go outside and fix and change that. You know, we will just get more used to it. It's mm-hmm. the kind of Aldous Huxley brave new world and it will be controlled by our comfort. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we are, you know. Pizza and TV, it's great, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, totally. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So how do you end up going to Iceland? Um, <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> oh, come on. No, that can't be the answer. <laughs> No, really, there was a beautiful picture on Facebook. I was like, I wonder where that is. And it was a fully funded master's program being advertised with a a sea lock and turquoise skies and um, yeah, very, very effective (laughs) marketing, which I completely fell for. But um, no, it was a a master's program in coastal management. And so I found my way up there pretty sharpish. It was a the first year of the course that had recently been established in a town called Isafjallr in the sort of northwest corner of Iceland, an area that very few people actually like make it up to when they visit Iceland. It takes um, probably about seven or eight hours driving and um, is often cut off in the winter by bad weather. So yeah, I spent a year up there studying and um Spent a lot of time during that time exploring the mountains and then went back through four years later to set up a a trail development project, which aimed to reimagine some of the old herding and walking routes that I'd been enjoying um, while studying. And I looked to connect a bunch of the region's towns by identifying trails that would connect you know the towns because most people who go hiking in the area go to a a nature reserve to the north of the inhabited area so none of the towns actually stand to gain from tourism when people do that apart from obviously a couple of guide companies but yeah the concept was to kind of link together the kind of natural and cultural highlights of the region into one mega long distance trail um (laughs) so so we started in june with a 10-foot snowbank underneath foot and like sheer drop-offs like in some of the mountains as we came down them and um a fairly inexperienced group of hikers and <laughs> attempted to walk for a couple of weeks from a to b with uh, everything on our backs and yeah we were <laughs> taught a few lessons along the way 
How did it go? Um, yeah, the first couple of days were absolutely terrifying. Uh, <laughs> um, we'd kind of overestimated how far we could get with a group of people, um, how comfortable people would feel in you know steep-sided, snow-covered mountains. Um, we had one lady who hiked the um, Everest base camp and still commented that this was the hardest hiking she'd ever done after two days. I was like, oh, okay. Um, So yeah, we had to adjust a little bit and uh, we did and we managed to keep everyone together. Even someone who had never been wild hiking or wild camping for a single night before managed to complete the whole lot, um, which was great. And yeah, then we kind of took a slightly different approach, aimed walk less, um, play more, locate camp in specific places, then do little day trips in and out and do work camps in a similar kind of format. And that seemed to work really well. Yeah. And you just didn't leave or? Um, it's always been a place that I've like gone back to again and again. So um, yeah, I've adopted a fairly sort of nomadic approach to living uh, ever since I was like 20. So, um, but always back to the same places. Like I've got a little circuit that I (laughs) seem to do. What's the circuit? (laughs) Um, It's not always like a yearly circuit. It's a very kind of um, opportunistic circuit or, you know, responding to the needs of whatever project is that I'm involved with or or working. Um, But I've worked a few winters up in the north of Sweden for a little company called Aurora Retreat. Um, little family-run eco guest house. Um, so I was doing their kind of northern light guiding and skiing tours. And, and uh, South Africa has been, I guess, a spiritual home of sorts. And um, I've learned a little bit about like healing there and plants and um, got some work as a, a guide out there a couple of times. And, and Iceland and... Yeah, England. So they're the kind of four main. I was going to ask where's home later, but do you know? Yeah, this concept of home is, I think for me is, yeah, it's got to be here. Like, you know, my family are here. Um, It's always felt like, well, it is, it's home. Hey, like I've, I've lived, or well, my parents still live in the house that I grew up in, so... Um, I can't claim, claim that it's anywhere else, but I also feel at home in, you know, in any other like place that I visit, essentially. I don't know. I, I kind of like this citizen of the world philosophy and um, ecology being a great leveler among people and, you know, our kind of natural birthright. And I think that's the ultimate home. <laughs> can you expand on that <laughs> um there's a nice little um sort of psychological model of like so you have your ego identity and then you have like your social identity which includes social responsibilities and your extended network of like family and friends and you know the, the things that you're involved with on that kind of level and then you have your eco identity so this is like a concentric circle um, so ego, social, eco. Um, 
And that kind of eco-identity is formed or created um, through relationship to the natural world and through relationship to specific places and you invest yourself in it and it becomes part of you, um, you know, as much as any other relationship is part of you. Um, and it gives as much as any other relationship, if not more. Like I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for you and every, every other like person who likes to spend time outdoors, we acknowledge that you know, that dynamic is there and we couldn't sustain ourselves without it. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. It's just a very neat model of like, oh, yeah, okay. So I'm not just me. Like I'm made up of like I like the I is actually a much more kind of broad and disparate set of interconnections and interrelationships. And um, yeah, if we if we manage to kind of take our place in the web of things, then I think that's that's what how I try and approach my facilitation practice and offering of experiences to others and like teachings um, is actually just to help people locate themselves within the web of, within the web of life. <laughs> Cause I think it resonates with us as well. Right. It like it flicks us, which. So before you got to the place where you were able to help others do it, do you think you went through that process yourself? Which process? The process of, well, the facilitation, I guess, of finding your place in the world. Yeah. I kind of, that was my informal education. You know, it's the stuff that I had to do, but there was no set path or way of doing it. But I managed to find myself or cross paths, fort fortunately, with the people who were able to offer me that. Um, wilderness vigils. Um, vision quests, um, eco psychology gatherings, uh, storytelling gatherings, um, you know, people who could kind of create or open doorways into that, that kind of relationship. And that allowed me, I guess, to locate myself in, in <laughs> you know, it's one's tribe, I guess. But yeah, storytelling is a really potent, potent way of doing that because it's obviously like made up of really ancient oral traditions that are born or come from people who had a really intimate understanding and connection to the natural world. So they still carry these messages. They still show us pathways to, to develop that relationship. And, um, yeah, they're grounded in, grounded in the earth or dreamt by the earth itself. What do you mean by stories? Um, like oral storytelling, um, primarily is something I've really enjoyed. Um, so like traditional indigenous stories um, from different locations around the world. And, you know, the UK has got a rich heritage of that just as, just as much as anywhere else. Why do you find value in them? They're unpredictable. They, you'll never, because they're told differently every time. Um, there's a spirit within a story that, you know, like there's a spirit within the conversation that we're having. There's a sort of animacy to the story. It's an alive like entity. And um, if we give ourselves over to those stories and those experiences, I think they can affect us in surprising ways. And they're built on the bones of, you know, our ancestors' understanding of the world. And you know, their understanding was not just born randomly or like plucked from thin air. It was, you know, 
taken and refined over countless generations and you know we should probably listen to them they probably <laughs> they probably have something pretty important to say to us yeah no i totally agree with you do you think this stuff is accessible do you think that people agree with you yeah it's a really good question like accessible no because it's not mainstream and um you know <laughs> i imagine half your listeners would probably be like what is this guy talking about <laughs> Well, that's what I'm trying to prevent because it is so easy to just, you know, let's speak very frankly here. You find one, find somebody who's very eco-minded, very spiritual, very nomadic. And you think, oh, you know, people will think maybe you're hippie or whatever. But you know, I'm lucky I've traveled a lot of places and met a lot of people. And actually lots of people are spiritual. They just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. One thing I often think with conversations like this is, you know, Game of Thrones is a very good example of how actually people really are into stories. You know, we've got very normal people who probably think that dragons and, you know, folklore is not up their street, but here they are watching Game of Thrones, which, you know, I don't know how, what's the solution? How do we tell people about their ancestral heritage through stories? I think it's a language thing. A lot of the time is like the container in which you offer this to like to other people is really important. And I've been super sensitive around that. You know, there's quite a lot of uh, spiritually minded people who I think are prone to adopting, you know, indigenous type language or, you know, tribal type language or, you know, whatever it is. And to be honest, that's been a big turnoff for me over the, you know, I've, whenever I've kind of heard that, I've moved away from it pretty sharpish. Um, we're in a time when, in a way, I think, you know, God has disappeared and has died and um, and yet we're longing for some measure of meaning. And if we can like, reimagine you know a language and allow that language just to be created by the experiences that we in, as individuals have and don't try and like tell people okay this is how you're going to communicate it it's more just like direct experience get out there then use whatever language you want to um, describe the experience that you've had and you know maybe together we'll we'll create some new new form of of understanding and um, communication that will not necessarily kind of refer back to older ways of communicating and seeing the world, but may still contain elements of you know similar components. But yeah, I guess that you know then you, we go back to the question of like, okay, so what what can the old stories you know teach us? Because you know they are bound up in in these old ways of communicating, but I think the great, the really good storytellers manage to take what they call are the bones of a story, you know, the kind of the twist, the plot, the main like underlying structure, and then bring it to life with um, modern reference and modern analogy. And, um, you know, that's that that makes it relevant like relevant rather like the storyteller who i trained with martin shaw you know he's always talking about instagram in the middle of a story or you know it's it's constantly just throwing in modern references which i think make it relatable i completely agree i think that's the interesting point of 
I have to be careful not to dive into some big speech about the importance of story, but it's all narrative, right? Everything is narrative. Everything is story. And, you know, whether it's filmmaking or podcasts or literal oral storytelling, music, etc., we're we're performing. We're showing somebody something that they're supposed to interpret and understand. It might be of us, but it's for them. Um, otherwise, we should just keep it at home. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, you know, that's the challenge, isn't it, is performing to the specific audience. If you're trying to teach old folklore to 16-year-old kids in an inner city, you would take a very different approach to mm-hmm. 70-year-olds in Jordan. No, totally. There's that lovely... Um, you know, a storyteller is only a storyteller with an audience. But do you even think, even the language of saying you're a storyteller, it sounds archaic, doesn't it, now? It does, yeah. No, it does. Um, and and yet, the more you move into that world, the more, you know, the more you familiarise yourself with that world, the more kind of, like, comfortable it becomes. So, yeah, it's a really, really tricky one. I think it's just... Gently, gently, slowly, slowly, and um, and then you—I guess—you have bigger kind of gatherings of people where you know essentially it's set more in stone these these this terminology. But um, yeah, I do like the idea of just creating a space for people to kind of interpret to interpret the experiences um, however they wish to, to interpret them. You don't even have to call it a story. You know, you can just be like, "All right, let's sit around for." some evening entertainment or um, campfire entertainment. That's it. It's labeling it, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. have you heard about the time that this happened? Mm-hmm. Well, you're about to tell me a story. Mm-hmm. You're telling me your story. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. How is it any different? Mm-hmm. And it gets deep and heavy quickly around whether or not you're tailoring that for me based on your understanding of what this podcast is, but that's mm-hmm. a whole different story. Um should probably dive back to somewhere significantly <laughs> less cerebral. Well, I, I'm fascinated by the draw. I think for me, what's interesting is, you know, as we look out over this place, it's grey and it's kind of bleak. I think it would be fair to say, Thought Nest Beach, and how you naturally get pulled towards Iceland from there. And, you know, can you describe Iceland to me? Because I think it's often seen as the Blue Lagoon and there's the black, you know, landscape and there's the downed plane that everybody photographs but that's like saying britain is ben nevis and dirtle door <laughs> yeah um so I, as i mentioned I'm, i've spent pretty much all of my time up in the west fields which uh is steep side steep sided mountains uh, big green valleys flat topped uh, mountains as well um so the mountains were formed by successive layers of volcanic activity just layering on top of each other, um, sort of in a with ten thousand years between each each volcanic event, um, and then with the last sort of ice age, it kind of scoured out these enormous fjords, and so you've got a real kind of fjordscape, and surrounded by the Arctic Ocean, the Greenland Sea, the Atlantic Ocean to the south. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a waterscape primarily. Um, thousands of rivers, thousands of waterfalls, um, big deep fjords, huge storms in the winter. In the spring months, it becomes um, an oasis for like nesting birds and yeah, the life, the land really, the yeah. 
the land really comes comes alive in the spring and the summer months and you get complete like 24 hour daylight which is another kind of really strong <laughs> part of being up there um but yeah it's it's i don't know is it bleak um it's austere i wouldn't call it bleak necessarily it's um you know at different times it's it's actually very verdant and rich and I, yeah, Jay, who I mentioned earlier, who's been helping me, you know, he was also arriving with these um, preconceptions of what Iceland was like. And I think one of the first things I did with him was take him foraging. And, you know, it quickly changed his mind that, you know, this so-called austere bleak land could actually provide for us quite quite well at certain times of the year. Um, so that's kind of been a cornerstone of our facilitation practice as well. It's like, introducing people to the the plants you can eat out there lots of blueberries and um, seaweeds and uh, mushrooms and even green like vegetables <laughs> which are otherwise pretty absent in the supermarkets up there so it helps to be a forager that sounds wonderful i've never been up there yeah it's really like sparsely populated so there's only like two or three thousand people in the whole region um spread across seven towns um so you really, yeah, you're really part of a small community. You know a lot of people, um, especially obviously moving within the same circles as you. You, know, you see the same people again and again. And yeah, this is as much space as you want to go and do pretty much whatever you want. Something we haven't discussed, I guess, is the, the particular paths and the, um, well, the paths, I guess, that you're recreating up there. Mm-hmm. What is it about the recreation that feels necessary or important? Yeah, we haven't necessarily been recreating the paths per se, but more mapping them, um, doing a bit of kind of anthropological research and talking to people about, you know, where old routes used to exist, trying to locate for like cairns that had fallen down um, and reimagining them with groups so beginning to walk them with artists and um, beginning to rebuild some of the cairns with volunteers and developing a body of knowledge and experience or like that's based in experience out on the land that we can then share to others which is what we're doing through you know creating these guidebooks which is our way of like extending the invitation that we've already extended to a you know a certain number of people through the program the programs that we've been running but yeah we want to kind of widen the invitation and help bring more people to the region and like you know or at least shape the experience of those people who are already going to the region because <laughs> i have a slightly tricky or like there's obviously a slightly paradoxical kind of situation of <laughs> being being in love with you know this beautiful environment wanting to protect it and you know wanting to raise environmental awareness and then actually just encouraging people to hop on a plane and go out there <laughs> to trample all over it yeah that was going to be my next question i don't know i'm less worried about the trampling I'm more worried about you know the kind of energy a footprint that comes with making a trip to iceland and you know, a trip anywhere nowadays but so difficult question deliberately how do you justify it um I think it's, you know, it's potentially a seed planted within a, a person's soul. And if they then go back home and think, 
hey, okay, like having read the materials or having walked on this um, trail as a result of the work that we've been doing there, um, they go home and, you know, make more ecologically minded decisions about their life. Like, great, like it's worth it. Um, we had some chap from France join us one year who wrote to us a couple of weeks after the trip had finished and thanked us for providing the impetus for him to get out of Paris and go and become a beekeeper in the south of France. And it was just like, yes. Yeah, you've won. <laughs> yeah. You've done it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm motivated by a vision to create a, a network of trails within the region because I think trails have just a beautiful capacity to like link us very directly with the land and the sea and like really shape experience beyond what you see so often and especially in Iceland like people hiring a car driving around like hotspot to hotspot to take a beautiful photo and the yeah. same photo and I've said yeah no exactly Ace. okay well I think as we draw to a close I'll bring it back to Thorpness Beach so now that we've been talking for I don't know how long, 45 minutes or something like that. I'm going to ask you again, I think, what that means, that cairn over there and why it's there and what it's for and is it finished and what happens now? Retrospectively, I've you know invested a certain amount of meaning into it um, without that necessarily originally being the intention of it, but that meaning that I've invested has been it's a place, it's it's my marker in the sand. In a way, I've found a location for myself here where I feel comfortable being seen. I feel comfortable living here. Um, I've located my place here to sound <laughs> very cheesy. <laughs> um, and the can, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been like a the shape of it kind of falls in on itself so it get it tapers towards the top and it's designed that way so that the weight falls into the middle um and there's something about that that speaks to me in terms of like there's a grounding there's a you know the grounding through gravity but there's a you know there's a weightiness to it that helps me feel rooted and and at the same time it's built in the intertidal zone so i'm kind of looking forward to it being dismantled by the sea as well um i try and embody or try and welcome that kind of cyclical life death life logic um psychologically speaking i think you know everything has a lifespan and everything has a kind of a natural end and um yeah it's uh i don't know it's a uh, as i said as well it's, it's it's my first kind of publicly visible um creative act which seems to be resonating really well with people um is it finished not quite a couple of kids <laughs> were adding stones to it this morning so <laughs> i'll probably go and remove those <laughs> And then, like, make it slightly rounder at the top, but it's getting there. Maybe one more layer. It's amazing watching the waves crash behind it as we're talking. 
Um, I mean, if that new god that you were talking about, um, he or she or it is listening, maybe that storm will arrive the day after you leave to go somewhere else. That's <laughs> <laughs> really true. <laughs> it's actually been... Um, so there was a shipwreck uncovered on the beach um, during the same storm when all of these stones started like washing up. And um, there's been a chap, Nicholas Meller, who um, has been trying to like understand the story of this shipwreck from 17th or 18th century. And um, it's been on display on the beach for the last month whilst I've been building this cairn. So people coming down to see the shipwreck have just like often found their way to the cairn as well. Two days ago, the shipwreck was recovered by the sea. Like bank of shingle was pushed up with the high tide. The waves were reaching the bottom of the cairn. But there's just like this, at the same, basically the same time I'm finishing the cairn as the shipwreck was recovered. And it just feels like the beach has kind of been revealing itself for a, for a month um, through this, through the boat and through these stones. And now it's done. It's like, right, now I'm going to cover myself up and you've made what you've made. We'll see how long that lasts. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's a lovely kind of circle there somehow. Are you a spiritual person? What does that mean? I think the spirit is one aspect of it. Um, like I think as humans, we we seek for that connection beyond and above us and um, that sense of unification with the universe, that sense of oneness. And then there's also the like opposite, which is the like the underworld, the, the sort of darkness, the, um, the grapples of getting your hands dirty, the getting it wrong, the falling apart, the, you know, the mess. And that can be, you know, that is just as important to me and um, finding my way through that kind of boggy uh, land is, has been a long journey and there's no, yeah, I mean, it, it comes in cycles again and again. And, you know, at times you fill up oneness with the, with the world and then um, at times it's, time to get your hands dirty and get down in the muck and um so spiritual yes and also like i think it's it's more of a kind of mythology where the earth and its uh language become my own language like i express whatever realities i'm experiencing through analogies connected to the natural world so it's a uh, earth syntax of sorts uh does that make sense yeah yeah how about you oh well i don't know can you pull that on me at the end <laughs> um yeah i am yeah very very much so in my own way i believe that i said it to you right at the start didn't i i think um before we press record i think everything we do has consequence and i think that's good and bad and mm-hmm. I think I find my spirituality not in the idea of, you know, gods or even myths as such, as much as I adore story and folklore. I think that this conversation will stay with me. This conversation might resonate with others. It might make others angry. It might make some people think, what are these idiots going on about? This conversation will have consequences. And I live my life in a way that is, I'm conscious of those consequences with the actions that I take 
which can be quite challenging in its own way because then I question everything. But hey, I'm the interviewer, so I'll stop there. <laughs> um, I have two last questions for you, usually quick fire. Um, the first one is what scares you? I feel like uh, authority. Um, yeah, I've got a bit, like it's, uh, but I think uh, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, what scares me is normally what I'm responding to. Like I respond to fear. So I, when I identify what it is, I normally like go towards it and overcome it, try to overcome it. Like, and you know, that can be quite conceptual from, um, the psychological realities that I'm kind of living with. Um, you know, is, is it a relationship um, dynamic that I'm kind of holding on to that actually like I'd be better off like moving through and beyond, um, you know, be that to a person or place or set of individuals or a particular type of individual. Um, so that, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, like I was saying with the Ken, like I had a fear about being seen. So I did it. Like it's a kind of revelation. It's uh, but I, yeah, I feel guided and like I feel, I think fear shows us a way that we have to go in a way. Like it, it provides the, the pathway or provide it, you know, it, it's a way marker on the, on the way. It's like lean into that fear. Don't avoid it. Don't overcome it. Like lean into it, like amplify it because it contains a message. It contains a grain of truth for you. And only by like attending it will you actually understand its message. That's fantastic. <laughs> we don't grow from comfort, do we? So what brings you hope? Um, sunrises and the continuation of things as they are. I think that's all I want to say on that. That'll do for me. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. It's edited by Kate Bullivant. You can keep in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can stay up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.